when he walked in the room, you knew he was in charge. Now, remember, I'm I'm a month out of high. I mean, you know, I'm right out of high school. I, I didn't know. What, I basically was a stupid little 17 year old guy. You know, I mean, I didn't know anything about life other than what, you know, hanging out at the drugstore after high school. So when he walked in, the, when I walked in that firehouse and he walked in the room, I was standing back in the, in the, in the training room waiting to meet him. He was in a T-shirt and regular pants, and I knew he was in charge. He had command presence. I've never, you know, before that time, I'd never heard the word command presence or even thought about what it might mean. But I knew this guy was special the minute he walked in the door, and I knew he was in charge. I didn't know a captain from a sergeant or, you know, again, I was just a 17-year-old kid right out of high school, or at that point, just had turned 18. But he was just a an amazing man. I all this I knew this was serious business. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And I've said it before, if you think though, think about those individuals who've had a productive career in the fire service, you may think of someone who spent somewhere between maybe 25 and 30 years in the business. And even in some sort of traditional career fields, uh, people who have a 40-year career is considered a long career. But today's guest literally blows that assumption out of the water. He's been a firefighter, a fire chief, and involved in the fire service, not only in the U.S., but is engaged in the fire service leadership from literally around the world. Please welcome to the podcast someone who recently retired with more than 50 years in the fire service, somebody I really want to call Colonel Sanders, uh, <laughs> and I can because he held that rank, uh, but for now, I'll officially call him Chief, Chief Russ Sanders. Russ, thanks for being with me today. It's my pleasure, Robbie. Glad to be here. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I do want to touch on that Colonel Sanders things because uh, you and I worked together in NFP for my four years at NFPA, and you just recently retired, retired. Um, and enjoying the good life. Uh, you you just mentioned it was uh, six six days and a six six Saturdays and a Sunday in retirement. That's it, man. It's so, great. So congratulations <laughs> on that. But uh, you, we, I've enjoyed hearing some of your stories uh, when we were working together and in meetings at NFPA, and certainly want to capture some of those and maybe document some of your career and uh, some of the stories you've told over the years. So uh, I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. So let's uh, let's go back to the start. Um, where are you from, and uh, how did you get started in the fire service? Well, I'm from Louisville. I grew up on the west side of the city of Louisville, which is the low income side of the city. Uh, and and uh, I'm telling you this now to make a little more sense in a moment. But I slept in an attic with two of my brothers, no air conditioner, no television. Uh, that's you know the way we, we. That's just how it was back then. This was 1967. I graduated from high school at 17 years old and became a carpenter apprentice. And I was working on a bridge site uh, down in, just not far from where I lived actually. And uh, I was building forms for concrete footers. And one of the guys got trapped and the, they called the fire department. So the fire department shows up and there's a guy on the quad, it was a quad, quad four, uh, that grew up in my neighborhood and I knew who he was. So I started talking with him and he said to stop by the firehouse on the way home. Well. I had no idea they even paid firefighters. I'd never even thought about being a firefighter. So I'm driving home from the construction site that day. I see him on top of the quad that I had no idea what he was doing at the time, but now 
they were changing holes. So anyway, I stopped and talked with him. And I probably shouldn't admit all this, but he said, look at this. We went in, they had air conditioning. I'd never been in air conditioning. They had a television, they had basketball courts. And he said, man, you work one day and off too. I said, sign me up. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so what, you signed up for the AC and the color TVs and the, uh, <laughs> the basketball court. And, and the work schedule. Oh, and it was, uh, I just couldn't believe it that this was actually there. Well, it was a, one of the busiest companies in the city because, again, it's on the low-income side of the city. And you know, that's the way it is. I mean, most of your runs are are uh, related to the to your social standing or social situation in the neighborhoods. So anyway, I went down, uh, signed up, and I'll never forget it because the uh, director of safety at the time uh, at civil service he said, you know, I was making uh, $14,000 a year as a, car as a carpenter apprentice. And he said, do you realize if you get this job, you're going to take a 50% cut in salary? Because they firefighters started out at 4400 and some dollars back then, a year. <laughs> so I said, oh, I always wanted to be a firefighter. So that's okay. <laughs> and Even every though time you just I discovered this. Oh, yeah. And even though, and so every time I ever interviewed, when I became chief of the department, interviewed new candidates, whenever they said, oh, my whole life, I want to be a firefighter, I thought, mm -hmm, I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, you've used that one before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's where I, how I, it all started for me. Like I say, I was just lucky to, uh, I ran into that guy, guy that was, his name was Norman Fultz, and uh, never forget it. That's, that's how, that's what brought me into the fire service. What year was that that you got your start? That was 1967. So I actually spent 55 years in the fire service, right at 55 years. Oh, well, and that, that, that is a career. I'll, yeah, I mentioned the comments, you know, you talk to people who got 35 years in and think that's, oh, that's a good career, but uh, you've got almost twice that in the, in the books. <laughs> What was uh what were your first days like in the firehouse? Did you did you have to go to a recruit academy? Did you get have to go to any kind of training before they put you on shift? No. In fact, uh they had just gone from a 24 on 24 off schedule to a 2448. So that's what the reason they were hiring a lot of firefighters. Uh so you literally I showed up at the firehouse, they you know, I went down to civil service, it's a civil service position. And they said, show up at this 100 North 34th Street, which was quad four at the time, which again, was right in the West End in my neighborhood. So I knew where the firehouse was. <clears throat> Showed up, walked in the door. Captain John Ridge was there. He introduced himself. They assigned me gear. And I was on the back of the firehouse, back of the fire apparatus back then, back of the quad, running out the door in about uh, maybe, I reported for duty at like 7.30. By 8.30, we were going out the door and had my first uh, fire death. So... And almost fell off the back because it was so happening so fast. I barely knew how to get in the gear. And back then it was nothing but rubber boots and a canvas coat and a, and a metal helmet. Uh, and I'm hang, standing on the back watching the other guys and they took off and it nearly threw me off the back. So I learned real quickly to hang on. But that was before seat belts or, or any safety belts, any of that. You know, you just rolled out the door. You're hanging on the side or wherever. And... Uh, we were first in and had a fire death, uh, second floor of an apartment building. So it was a, it was, and it was a wild west back then. I mean, we were making lots and lots of fires and fire deaths. You know, I remember every single day for an entire year, we had at least one structure working structure fire. 
every single day, at least one. So, and sometimes uh, I remember days when we came in, reported to duty, you change shifts at eight o'clock, but everybody got there at seven or seven fifteen because most of the other guys had, uh, and I say guys because they were all men back then, uh, had off day jobs. So <clears throat> you would get there. I remember one time coming in, I took got my gear on the track at uh, seven thirty, didn't get back till eight o'clock the next morning. Just went from one fire to another. That was before urban renewal or any of that kind of stuff. So it was a it was a wild time, to say the maybe, least. Maybe the fire volume was urban renewal back then. It was the way yeah. to get new structures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's about what was happening. That's for certain. So that that first fire you went to was a fatal fire. Um, what what was it like in the station that day after that fire? You know, did you have second thoughts? Was do you did you oh I'm in for the for the game? Did you expect to spend the next fifty five years in the fire service after that fire, or was there any change of heart? You know that that probably this probably doesn't sound as good as it could, but that didn't. I was set six. I'm sorry, eighteen years old, and had just turned eighteen. I was only my birthday was in October, is in October, and that was November the twelfth. So I didn't just had one month into being eighteen years old, and you know you're indestructible when you're that age. So I just rode with it and thought this is a job and this is the way it goes. And you know the the construction site I was talking about earlier, the guy that was working beside me was killed on that site. So it didn't. It impact me at that time like it did later because, again, I was just just a kid, basically, you know, and I thought I could do anything and nothing was going to hurt me. And, you know, it was just a, a a different time. And like I say, I had zero training at, at that time. And all the captain told me to do was hang on to his coat, just stay right with him and don't get what, you know, don't wander off. So that's what we did. We didn't have self-contained breathing apparatus or anything. Wow. So Good. that's the, uh, and, and later, just after that, they started bringing uh, people into recruit school where they would work, you know, they would go to recruit school that day and then go to the fire station at night and report to duty that night. So that happened a couple of months or maybe six or eight months after I was hired. But when I was hired, I had almost a almost an entire year on the job before I ever went to recruit school. So it was, it, and that was so key because you and I have talked before about Captain John Ridge, a man I admire uh, as a leader more than any person I've ever known in my life. And he was, you know, I've had an opportunity to go to college. Uh, you know, I got a master, two master degrees, a bachelor's degree. I've got a fellowship from Harvard. I've never had an instructor anywhere near as qualified as him in the university let's, system. Let's the talk guy about was, him. Let's yeah, talk about him for a second, because he was, like you say, he was your first officer. Uh, you know, you, you've mentioned him. I've heard you mention that name before. Um, you know, what, what was it about him that made him such an impactful, um, influence on you as a young firefighter? Well, I tell you, Robbie, he was, uh, when he walked in the room, you knew he was in charge. Now, remember I'm, I'm a month out of high, I mean, you know, I'm right out of high school. I, I didn't know what, I basically was a stupid little 17 year old guy. You know, I mean, I didn't know anything about life other than what, you know, hanging out at the drugstore after high school. So. When he walked in, the, when I walked in that firehouse and he walked in the room, I was standing back in the in the in the training room waiting to meet him. He was in a t-shirt and regular pants, and I knew he was in charge. He had command presence. I've never, you know, before that time, I'd never heard the word command presence or even thought about what it might mean. But I knew this guy was special the minute he walked in the door, 
and I knew he was in charge. I didn't know a captain from a sergeant or, you know, again, I was just a 17 year old kid right out of high school or at that point just had turned 18. But he was just a, an amazing man. I, all this, I knew this was serious business. And he, I'll give you, I, I, this is a story I don't think I've ever shared before, but the, one of the first things he asked me, he said, do you smoke? Now, remember, this is 1967. Most everybody smoked. I said, yes, sir. He said, nobody on my company smokes. I said, well, I don't smoke anymore. That was it. I never smoked another cigarette. So, <laughs> I mean, it was, he was just an amazing guy. Uh, like I say, he had that command presence. And I think back, the, as busy as the company was that I was on Quad 4, he trained us every day, and I mean hours and hours and hours of training, far better training than I received later at recruit school. And, if, and, I, and I wonder when some of the other company commanders obviously were not up to his level, not even close. And I thank God that I came in on his company, not theirs, because I knew my job. I, and I'll and I, and I, I tell you, when I got, uh, this is a quick story that will give you a feeling for how much he was respected, not just on our company. They, we were called Ridges Raiders all over the fire department. You know, we had about, back then, about 800, 900 firefighters, and everybody knew of John Ridge. Now, a lot of them were jealous and resented him, and they try to make fun and say, oh, you're one of Ridges Raiders, this, that, and the other. But I'm a six-month firefighter, and I would be detailed. And when I'm, I think of one company in particular, uh, Snarkle 2, which was in downtown, and it was a busy company as well. And I'd walk in the door, and the cap, the same captain that would try to snicker about Ridges Raiders, and he'd look at me and say, you from John Ridges' company? I said, yes, sir. He said, you're on first axe. And I'm thinking to myself, he's got a firefighter over here that he's trained that's got six, seven, ten years on the job, and he, first axe was the most experienced position, or first pipe. I'm sure you probably know this same terminology. I hope people listening do, but it's it's your most experienced person who's going to go in for rescues on first acts, and of course, first pipes your first pipeman on your first line in. So these are positions you would normally assign to your most experienced person. So just by default, by being on his company, you had the respect. And I thought to myself, I'd hate to be that guy sitting over there for ten years, and this new boy walks in the door, and they move him off and put me on first acts. And and I always wondered why doesn't that captain get his act together and think I would be humiliated if I was a captain and I, and I felt like my 10 year man couldn't compete with a six month man. So uh, it was just that kind of thing uh, that, you know, he has had that respect all over the, all, all over the department, even though again, a lot of my old resented him, they were jealous of him. I mean, they, he was just a legend. And, uh, but I'm telling you, we had night maneuvers and nobody complained, you know, we're out at night, late at night, and we're making fires all the time. We're still doing night maneuvers on roofs. And because, like he said, you make most of your fires at night. We're not going to train in perfect conditions in the daytime. We're going to go out in inclement weather, pitch dark. We're going to work on roofs. We're going to ventilate roofs, those kinds of things. So he was just uh, an incredible, amazing person. That's like a, a true, you train like you fight kind of mentality. That, that's exactly what he would say, too. This is serious business. We're going to train in a serious manner. So what, what was go ahead. go ahead? Now what was the deal with the the smoking? Because I mean this is the late '60s. Obviously at the time, you know, firefighter cancer wasn't a, a thing or a concern like it is today. What was right. his What was his philosophy behind no smoking on his shift? Oh, it was all physical fitness. It was all about health. He wanted 
you didn't see any overweight firefighter on his crew. You didn't see every person on his crew was trained. We did calisthenics all the time. We did push-ups, set-ups, pull-ups. It was all about being in shape because that was part of how you do your job at the best possible way is to be in the best possible condition. And he was like that. He was just, you know, he was in perfect, well, I mean, I shouldn't say perfect, but he was in excellent uh, condition uh, himself. He trained every day. He trained, we trained physically. We trained through our programs, our apparatus. I mean, you you just couldn't, can't imagine how well you knew your job and you had 100% confidence in your job. You had no doubt when you went out the door that you were going to be able to perform at the highest possible level because you'd practiced and practiced and practiced and you were trained and ready to do it. And we, we talked before and you mentioned that he has since passed away. Uh, he'd been an interesting guest for this this podcast as well. But what what was his background? What What made him... I'll call it a militaristic. It sounds like, you know, you're a, you're a military unit. You you train like you fight, that physical fitness. That's what exactly was his background right. that got him there? I'm so glad you asked that question, Ralphie, because he was a World War II veteran, paratrooper, 101st Airborne. Uh, he, I want to tell you, he, a uh, quick story. We had the, the, the riots in 19, it must have been 68. I think it was 68. It was, and it was going on all over the country, but it was really bad in Louisville. They were, we had a couple of firefighters shot on the apparatus. And, and so anyway, they brought in the national guard and the first unit they brought in was just completely unprepared. They were not just outside Louisville a unit, just outside Louisville. And they were basically, you know, poorly, poorly trained, unprepared, I'll never forget they were assigned to the fire stations. They'd ride out with us and they had, they were armed and had, you know, back then, I guess they were, uh, you know, military rifles. He brought them in and trained them. He, he could still break down an M1 rifle blindfolded and reassemble it. They didn't know what, they had no clue what they were doing. They didn't. And he was literally out there training them in military tactics. And they're all hanging on to every word he says, because they were kind of like the same situation. They were, apparently they had a company commander or, or an outfit that didn't care. It was a weekend warrior kind of thing. You show up and afterwards you drink beer and that's the extent of it. And I say that because the next group they brought in was from Eastern Kentucky. And these guys were for real. They were fully trained and they, I mean, they were ready for combat. So, but I thought it was so funny. Here's the captain on the fire company training the, their military leaders how to be soldiers. So wow. it was incredible. He, he was just an amazing guy, but that, he, his background was in World War II paratrooper. And then, uh, and then he came into the fire service. So he was probably in, he probably had 17, 18 years. in when I came on the job. Something Where like did that. his career take him? How what what did he go on to do? Was he did he ever get promoted up into chief officer ranks or where did oh, yeah. his career take him? Yeah, he he uh, another another one. He was an assistant chief. Uh, I, I think I've told you the story about before when I came back from the army uh, and reported in. I had this captain that was just horrible. I mean, the guy was terrible. Uh, and when he at that time, while I was gone, what served my time in the army during, back during the Vietnam War as well, he uh, he was made assistant chief and was promoted, and he was in charge of training. Well, he is the kind of guy. But and again, I mean, you couldn't have had a better person in charge of training. I mean, that was the smartest move ever. Well, after they had trained, and again, we were still training a lot of people back then because of the you know we had 
and we had about 800, 900 firefighters, and there was a lot of them that were uh, needed to be replaced because of the 2448 change in schedule. And uh, the city hall made the decision to lay off about 100 firefighters. He went to city hall before the board of aldermen and just reamed them out. And told him, you know, you because he, he took it personal. This was this was real world for him. This wasn't some political gag that they were trying to pull to get what they wanted. And so obviously that was the end of his career with the Louisville Fire Department. Uh, because he just walked off and said, That's it. You know, I won't put up with this, I won't accept this. You know, you're disrespecting the the membership, your our, our firefighters, you know, their safety means everything to me. He was talking about firefighter safety. Back in nine, in the '60s, when other people never, you know, you never heard ever heard anybody talk about firefighter safety. So he was just a man of complete integrity. And once they did that, he was finished. So then he went. He did a lot of training throughout the state. He did uh, training for uh, a, a conduct, couple of different consulting firms. Uh, he, he did. Uh, he became the safety officer for the Metropolitan Sewer District. And there again, I remember seeing a piece in the paper where. They, they went for the longest term ever at the MSD, Metropolitan Service District, without an injury because he was a safety officer. Because he trained them. He didn't just take the title and say, you know, hey, I'm going to be your new training officer, or safety officer, let's go get lunch. I mean, it was it was business on all business. And so he was just an amazing person. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the interesting contrast, and I know you've shared this story with us a couple, with me a couple of times in various, you, you mentioned you went off the, uh, off to Vietnam, did your army service. And thank you for that, by the way. Thanks for being there. And thank you me. came back to Louisville Fire um, in a little, to a little bit of a different environment. Tell that story about when you came back to the station and uh, what you found when you came back. Yeah, it was a, it was a real learning experience for me. I'll tell you, you talk about a, a, a learning moment. I, well, I went, got discharged from the army, came back, went to civil service. They assigned me right back to quad four, same house I'd left two years about two years early uh, earlier and it was kind of funny because they had a combination locks on the door and our combination was 345 our union was local 345 so nothing nothing had changed i went in 345 walked in the door and the house was quiet but the apparatus the quad was in quarters and there's you know nobody moving around i'm kind of looking in the kitchen looking around i'll go back in the training room and here's this guy laying on the sofa with an old nasty looking t-shirt on and just a grung, grungy looking guy. And I thought he was a street person. I thought it was just somebody who came off the street because we had a lot of that stuff uh, back then. And uh, so I kind of kicked the sofa and said, hey, where's the captain? And he looked at me and he said, uh, what are you talking about? I said, where's the captain? He said, I'm the captain. I said, no, I'm serious. Where's the captain? He said, I'm the captain. I said, where's Captain Ridge? He said, oh, he's been promoted. He's at the training bureau now. I said, where are all the members? Where's the company, the quads and quarters? He said, they're in bed. He said, who are you? I said, you're really the captain on this company? And he said, yeah. And I turned around, Robbie, I walked out the door and I, I, was not, I wasn't on his ship, thank God. I was just telling him I was going to report for duty tomorrow, the next day. I walked out and I was sick to my stomach because I knew when I came in, just had turned 18 years old. If I'd had him as a captain, I would have been in bed sleeping it off. I would have never, I've been lucky to ever make my probation, much less be the chief of the department. And I felt for how blessed I was that I came in under a real professional, a real leader, and did not come in, in under that officer because I, you know, I learned early on 
that all if the most important person in that the fire department is the company commander. That's the person who has control 24 hours a day. And if you look at a company that's well trained, performing at their highest level, you look to the company commander. If you look at a sloppy company that's, you know, un, untrained and, uh, you know, lazy and not, you know, being the last one, you know what I'm talking about, the last company to lay off, you know, they're slowing down runs. So somebody else will have to lay their holes, all that. You can look to the company commander. So I was just so blessed that in 1967, November 12, 1967, when I walked in that door, that it was John Ridge and not that other captain or another captain like that person. So did, uh, when you came back, did uh, with that difference in experience, did you ever think about uh, a career change or a department change or leaving Louisville or trying something different just because of the, the culture experience uh, day one versus day two years post Army? No, not actually. Actually, it, it was of kind of the opposite. I thought I had not only had the greatest leader I ever met or ever worked with with John Ridge before the Army, but I was very fortunate in the Army. I also had excellent leaders. Now, they, I wouldn't put them in the same league with John Ridge, but they were excellent. They were very, very good leaders. So I knew the difference. You know, I had a, an opportunity to compare and contrast excellent professionalism, leadership, compared to sloppy uh you know, just unprofessional, unethical leadership. So, or, you know, in my case, like I say, he was in a leadership position. He was certainly no leader. But uh, so that inspired me to want to get promoted, to work hard and think, I want to be the captain. I want to make sure that I can make a difference in other recruits, you know, young people's lives. And I, I don't want to be like this person. So it actually inspired me more than anything and uh, when I did become chief of the department, we had we always had a policy where the new recruits went to the busiest companies. So, and that was that makes sense. Obviously, that's where you're going to get a lot of experience. Of course, back then, I mean, now they go through 26 weeks of training before they ever go to a company. So it's not like back in the 60s that I was in. But but I changed that because even though we had, I want to say we had 137 captains when I retired. It was something in that range. We all knew who the real captains were, what I call the real ones, the ones that were really exceptional and doing the job. And it was probably unfair to them because we loaded them with the recruits because I knew that was going to make a much bigger impact on that recruit's future than how many fires they made a day. You know, so I, that that one experience back in 19, which been 1969 when I got out, I'm sorry, no, 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 71. I was on the job two years before I went in the Army. I was in from 67 to 69. I went in the military in 69, in the Army in 69, got out in 71. Uh, so I, I had an opportunity to see the very best and the very worst, and it really, you know, impacted the rest of my career and the rest of my life. You know, I mean, I, every leader I ever worked with after, I, I compared to John Ridge, <laughs> and most of them didn't do that well. You know, there were yeah. some really good ones, but they weren't, they weren't John Ridge. So let's flash forward a little bit. You know, you got the, you came back in 71, obviously got promoted. Uh, when did you become fire chief in Louisville? Uh, 1986. So I, I was uh, the youngest chief in the history of the department. In 1986, I was 38 years old. Uh, the first, and back then, you know, uh, it was a, different than today. I mean, today that's probably, I'm still the youngest chief that ever been in Louisville, the chief of the Louisville Fire Department at 38, but I know today it's not unusual for guys you know, of young early 30s to be chiefs of the department, but I was committed to. I studied every 
waking moment because that's what I wanted to be. I was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be the chief of the department, and I was just uh, fortunate to have that opportunity. But, and and I stayed in touch with John Ridge all the until the day he died. In fact, I was with him a couple of days before he died, and I I, I met with him, talked with him about different things. Uh, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, uh, when you and I talked before, I co-authored two t textbooks on structural firefighting and dedicated those to him. Uh, and he, I learned still so much. And the day I got promoted to chief of the department, I got a, an inv a letter in the mail at headquarters. And it said, I don't know if the lunatic, if, if, if there's been a change of command or if the lunatics have taken over the asylum. And it was from him. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so... Uh, you know, so, but in 86, and then I was there nine years, I retired in 95, I left the department in 95 and went to NFPA. Well, there's, there's and, and that's, that kind of reflects back on the Colonel Sanders. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, when you first got promoted to chief, you were, you were the Colonel in uh, Louisville. Right. Talk, talk a little bit about that. And, um, you know, and I think still today, they have a very, their rank structure is very, uh, military based. I mean, one of the one yes. of the guys I'm frequently interacting with up there is a lieutenant colonel, and right, so uh, right. did, did you stay Colonel Sanders for the for your uh, almost ten years <laughs> as a fire chief? Well, you know, Robbie, but that's funny. I was, I was. It was a, there was an assessment center process going on to select a new chief, and there was, you know, of course, several of us involved in it. It was all organized by this research foundation group out of yeah you know, out of the research foundation area in North Carolina there. And uh, so it was going on and on, and this went on for at least a couple of weeks. And my wife was the manager of a tennis club in town at the time. And I was at home and she called and said, have you heard anything today? Because, you know, we had completed the process and it's, you know, days go on and on. Of course, everybody's very anxious. And I said, no, I haven't heard anything. Uh, you know, I'm thinking it's probably not good. If I was going to get the job, I'd already heard it. So I said, why don't you just pick up something to eat on the way home and we'll just, you know, stay in tonight. So she got Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so we're sitting at the kitchen table eating, and the phone rings, and I got a chicken leg in my mouth, and I pick up the phone, and it's the mayor. He says, Colonel Sanders, you're the new police chief. I said, what? He said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean the new fire chief. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, this must be an omen. You know, this must be karma or something. So, <laughs> But anyway, so that, that was the process, and then uh, – uh, you know, then of course I went down, was sworn in, and all that business, and 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 took over the job. But it was a, and I was very fortunate again. I had a fabulous mayor to work with. He was just completely supportive, a hundred percent behind the fire service. It was just a really a dream job. Uh, let's talk about a couple of your other experiences there. You, you mentioned that you kind of changed uh, how the recruits or the new folks in the department were kind of assigned to you. You plugged them into companies that had those John Ridge-like company officers. Uh, anything else you did as a fire chief that kind of um, put your thumbprint on the department, so to speak, once you became chief? Uh, yeah, I, I would say the most important thing I did by far, and I don't say I did it because I didn't do it. I had a great team with me doing it, but I mean, you know, I was the chief at the time, but, the, you know, I wouldn't, I, they, a lot of my uh, other people were doing the heavy lifting. But we changed, we were a very, suppression-oriented fire department. And I mean, there was reason for that. We made a lot of fires, but a lot of those fires, I can remember back, and I mean, made a lot, a lot of fire deaths. 
they they should have been prevented. They should have never happened. So I went out and visited every fire station and every bureau on every shift and told them this is going to be the new fire department. Our number one priority is public education. Number two is cold enforcement. So when you run out the door with those red lights flashing and sirens blowing, you're telling the entire community we just failed again because that's the ultimate failure when we have to go drag dead babies out of a house. So we're not doing that anymore. So every single person to this fire department is now responsible, number one, for public education. And I trained them. Well, I, I didn't train them. I mean, we had them on recruit school. We taught, had them, taught them how to do curriculum, how to do lesson plans, how to do public speaking, this kind of thing. So they can go out, be fully trained into the communities, work with the children in schools, work with the elderly in the high-rise, low-income properties, and all these other high-risk groups, and be trained to do that and know how to do that. Well, Robbie, I had 100 people retire on one day. They said, now they were all eligible to retire, so it wasn't like they had these high moral standards. That they, they said, I didn't come here to babysit kids and to babysit old people. I'm leaving. I had 100 people retire one day alone. So I said, you know what? It's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. We're going to get new dogs in here, and we're going to teach them. And that's what we did. We, we got them right in recruit school, right off the bat. Of course, they still had to learn how to operate and raise ladders and lay lines and all that. I mean, but but we had a very intensive training in terms of uh, code enforcement and uh, public education. And it's something you'll enjoy, I changed it to where you could not be promoted. You didn't qualify to take a promotion exam unless you were certified in BOCA modules at the time. This was back with, when BOCA was around. So. If you were going to be a, and I, I can't remember the exact number, but to be an, a, a sergeant, you'd have at least one Boca module, captain, two or three, a battalion chief, four or more, you know, and it went up the line like that. And you had to report to the Fire Prevention Bureau for at least part of your probation to work in the Bureau and learn from them. Because the way we set this up was we had then, let's say we had 700 firefighters by this time. We had 700 firefighters out on the streets every day working with public education projects, doing code enforcement. But then if there were issues, the expert would be, they would go to the Fire Prevention Bureau. So we went from having a Fire Prevention Bureau of maybe 35 people who were responsible for the entire city, inspections, public education and everything, to having 700 people responsible with those 35 being the experts that they can call on when they need, you know, if it's, you know, shutting down a business or, or going to court over a code violation or whatever it was, if they just needed technical assistance. So, and we reduced fire deaths by record numbers. We went from losing seven children a year to no children in, in, in several years, and we cut fire deaths by more than 50%. So, you know, so I look back and think there's no question that's the most important thing I'd that under my, during my term as fire chief that was accomplished. And we also passed the very first high rise retrofit sprinkler bill in the country. That, the, the, uh, let me correct that. The uh, mo first uh, proactive sp fire sprinkler uh, bill. So we didn't, in other words, we, I went to my mayor city hall and I said, look, they had just had the one Meridian Plaza in Philadelphia. You remember that three firefighters died in that. No, no sprinklers. Same thing out in Los Angeles and the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And the, and the list went on and on. And I said, look at Philadelphia. They've got 
probably 1,500 back then. They were probably twice the size of Louisville. I think we had like 700. They probably had about 1,400 firefighters. The building right across from City Hall was an identical building to the one where the three firefighters died. I said, if they can't with 1,500, I'm not going to be able to do it with 700. So we got, my mayor was absolutely fantastic. He supported me the whole way. And I mean, the community came down on me hard. I mean, the, the, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, we're all the, they're going to shut down the high rise buildings and people are going to leave the city and we can't attract businesses and blah, 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 and all that business. Well, of course, none of that happened. And uh, we have not had it, to my knowledge, since that ordinance passed, which would have been 1993, I believe. No, not, maybe 1995. 1995, there has not been a high rise, a fire death in a high rise building in Louisville since. And we were losing them. One building alone, we lost one, it seemed like at least, at least, once every other every other month it was there these were low income um you know hud buildings with no sprinklers so uh i'm very proud of that uh that that has been that was extremely successful and again we were the first to say we're not you know it's easy to react i mean if you if you have the the mgm grand fire and you lose i forget how many people but a lot of people in fire i think it was around in the 80s in a building like that, then it's easy to, it's easier at least to say, we got to do something about this. We've got to retrofit these buildings. But when you go in and nobody's excited because you haven't really lost a fire, you know, anybody, you know, I mean, big numbers like that, you know, when you lose one in two people, it just doesn't get the attention that it does if you lose an 80 or 90. And we, at that same time too, we had the fire down in San Juan, uh, that Puerto Rico that killed a, it seemed like 90, 96 people, something in that range as well. Again, unsprinklered high-rise buildings. So, so I think those were probably the most important things by far that 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 occurred during my watch as chief. But that's interesting because you know even today, you know, this is to 30 30-ish years past that, and the arguments they were arguing against you on. Are still the arguments they're using today of oh if we require sprinklers nobody build houses and if you put sprinklers in it's going to kill this and it's not going to yeah it's it's the same same song uh and it's still that battle is still going on across the country and you guys just happen to be able to win it in uh, in louisville so, yeah that's exactly right I, I in fact i've spoken on that at, uh for jim dalton and john carso and some of the others that well john carso was my assistant chief and he was heavily involved in this, so he he knew all about it. But we've gone around other cities that uh, were trying to get to adopt retrofit for high rides, and spoke and told that stories for NFSA. So I know they've had some success. In other cases, unfortunately, there's far too many times where they, like you said, they're hearing the same old myths, and you know, and money drives it. You know, that's what's behind it. And look at uh, what happened earlier this year in Philly and New York. I mean, it's that's yep. uh, there's there's two terrible tragedies that happened earlier this year, so it's it continues to happen. Right. So that, that really positive stuff you did as fire chief. Let's talk about one that uh, you shared with me that made kind of everybody laugh at the dinner table one night, and when you tried to break up uh, a, a pretty popular band, the New Kids on the Block. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't try to break them up. It's funny. I was at home. And we had back then we had what we call a fire phone. So it was a red phone in my house, and that was directly connected to the fire uh, fire alarm office. And if it was a you know a multiple or whatever, they call me and you know this that and the other. So it's about I don't know one o'clock in the morning. The phone rings, and they say uh, Major Ott, who was uh, trying to he was a, over the arson squad, 
he needs to talk with you. And I said, okay. So they patched him in and he said, chief, I need you to come down here. He said, it's all hell is going to break loose down here. He said, we're going to have to arrest Donnie Wahlberg. And I said, Donnie Wahlberg, who's that? I never heard of him. And, and by now, of course, everybody in the house is awake. The kids are awake. My kids then were, you know, young, really young. And I said, I never heard. He said, you know, new kids on the block. And I said, no, nope, that doesn't help either. And so one of my sons said, I know who they are. They're a rock and roll group, you know? So I said, okay. I said, so what's the big deal about it? And so anyway, he said, I really need you down here. The media is all over this thing. So they were in town doing a concert and there was a, and at least this is the way I remember the story. This was a long time ago. This was, would have been mid eight, uh, maybe 88, 89, something like that. So I, I, he apparently is in the hotel. It's a Sealback Hotel, which is a grand hotel in, in downtown Louisville. And it was messing with a little girl while he was on the payphone in the lobby, because this, of course, is long before you had cell phones and things like that. So and a woman in the hotel came up and got on his case about it and said, you know, this is inappropriate and whatever. So anyway, she went to her room. So he goes and gets vodka and pours it outside the carpet and sets it on fire of this woman's room. Well, the fire didn't amount to anything. It pretty much burned itself out. But anyway, we arrested him. So I went down and you, Robbie, you wouldn't believe it, but people listening probably would because they've probably been through similar things. Everybody that came out of the woodwork trying to get this guy off the hook. You know, he had law firms from Boston and New York, and they were lobbying my mayor. They were lobbying the prosecutor. And, you know, and I have to tell you, not my mayor, but my mayor was funny because he told him, he said, and these are big political contributors and things like that. And he told him, I said, hey, I can't do anything with that chief. Uh-uh, I can't overrule him. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the, even the prosecutor started coming up with ideas of what, how we're going to let him get off of this. And I said, no, no, we're not agreeing to anything. I w- we're the arresting organization, and he's going to trial. We're not making any exceptions for this guy. So the, the, the beauty of the story is really everybody, and I'll tell you one last part of it. It was so unfortunate that even the judge had his teenage daughter in the front row because she wanted to see Donnie Wahlberg. So it was a circus, basically. <laughs> so the, everybody, you know, I'm getting calls from these powerful law firms and all this. And I get a call one day and I, I you know, to, I, I'm not sure if he called or stopped by now. It's been a long time ago and I hadn't thought about it until you and I and some of the others at MPA were laughing about not long ago, but his father contacted me. And I remember my, my secretary saying, Donnie Wahlberg's father is here to talk with you. I'm thinking, oh God, here we go again. You know, and I'm, this guy was absolutely first class. He walked in, he said, I appreciate what you're doing. I understand exactly what you're doing. Everybody caves in. He said, I appreciate the fact you're not. That was our conversation. I thought, now here is a first class guy. Because he understood his son is cannot, you know, he's got consequences like anybody else when there's bad behavior. You just can't keep ignoring him because he sings for a rock group. So, uh, but anyway, that was basically the end of it. And, you know, that he, uh, he was convicted of course, and I, I, you know, he didn't get much out of it. He got, uh, you know, public, he had to do some public work and some different things and some fines and things like that, if I remember correctly, but yeah, it made, it was news all over the place, you know, all over the country, all over the world, I guess at the time, but there's there's even a even a YouTube video out there that uh, you sent us the link to after that conversation that night. Yeah. I'm going to put it in, I'm going to put it in the notes for this show so people could see 
<laughs> Russ Sanders is the fire chief talking about Donnie Wahlberg getting arrested. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty interesting clip. Yeah, I think in that clip too, they got Colonel Sanders on there. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, but... <laughs> yep. that's where that's where it was. So, well, good stuff. Uh, you know, any uh, you know, think back to your overall fire service career just in Louisville. Um, any other uh, major incidents that came up that uh, kind of popped into your mind in addition to those you know kind of fatal fires um, that that kind of stand out as memorable for for you from uh, either a learning experience or uh, anything like that. Well, you know, they do. And unfortunately, it's usually the, the negative ones. I mean, I think of uh, the fire on Mother's Day when I crawled through the front door and there were two twin babies. Both of them were burned to a point their feet, both of them's feet were burned off. Uh, those kind of things never leave you. You live with those the rest of your life. You think about, you asked me early on about the first fire death I made. That didn't really affect me like these because, again, I I, I didn't know anything I, I just knew there was a dead body there and i mean you know the, but this i felt like you know we failed again because that fire should not have occurred that fire should have been prevented so a lot of those types of fires and unfortunately those are the ones that always kind of come back and stick in your mind uh i talked you and i talked before about the one where we waded through gasoline knee deep to rescue a guy out of a, a tanker, a, a fuel tanker that had overturned down in the valley. Uh, some of those uh, that were, and, and, you know, that you wonder how in the world you ever made it through that. I mean, because like I say, back then you didn't have any protection at all. Of course, when you're wading through gasoline, it doesn't matter much what kind of protection you have. If it ignites and you think of all the opportunities for it to, it to ignite, like a battery, spark from a battery or anything, we did some some really crazy things that luckily we survived those but i do have two uh, a quick story to tell you about fires that we made because you, and you again you being a firefighter you, and hopefully the people listening they can relate to this but we, i remember i talked earlier about truck two or snorkel two it ended up being truck two later on it's tower two now but back then it was snorkel two well that was the second district headquarters and there was a major there we have a majors were battalion chiefs so he had a major in each district or a battalion chief in this, each district, and that was Jim Bond, who was a second district battalion chief. And he was <clears throat> known as one tough character. I mean, he was a hard nose at all business. You know, people were kind of terrified of Jim Bond. So I'm detailed up to snorkel too. This was when I was a young firefighter and I'm put on the first axe. I go up the window and it one of these fires, Robbie, it looks like the place is just blowing with fire, but it's superficial. I get through the window. i got a, a one line. They're lightning in on this line. I put the fire out. Major Bond, it, it later became a colonel, but Major Bond pulls up on the scene. I stick my head out and said, we got it. It's knocked down. No problem. We'll just clean it up. And he looked at his guys and he was one of these. And he says, we got a detailed man up here that went in by himself and put this fire out. And he's ripping everybody on the scene because it's embarrassing that his crew was kind of showed up by this me, this detail guy. Well, now fast forward, oh, 25, 20 years at least forward. Now I'm a captain. No, not wouldn't have been that far, but maybe 15 years forward. I'm a captain on a company, and we've got a huge snowstorm in town, and we've got the National Guard out with us, and we've got, you know, everybody's called in from off day, you know, you know, everybody's got a auxiliary apparatus covering districts and so forth so anyway we got a, a major that's working out in this district he pulls up it's a school fire and it's and it's blowing out the windows and he hits the second so 
I'm the first engine company in. So I pull in, pull up. We lay two inch and three quarter lines in. And Robbie, it's another one of these freak luck deals. Both of these were just total luck. We get positioned in a hallway and knock the fire down. And we got a lot of fire. I'm, I was even surprised we could knock it down with two inch and three quarter lines. But if we hadn't knocked it down, it would have jumped the hall and it would have been in the gymnasium. And as you know, that's the end of that building. So we knock this down. Bond pulls up on the scene, the same guy. And at this point now, he's a colonel. And I walked out and said, Colonel, don't worry. You can cancel all that. We got it knocked down. He looked at me and he said, once again, we got one man coming. And I thought, oh, my God, was I ever blessed because I knew the next one would be a complete flop. And, and both of these were complete luck. I know you've made fires where you pull up and you think, oh, my God, we got a, you know, buku amount of fire here. And it turns out you knock it down, nothing flat. And then other times it's just smoke and you think, oh, this might not be that bad. And it turns out that you're on the scene for two days. So it was it was just pure luck that in both cases with this guy who was known as, no, basically nobody liked him. I mean, he was known as, you know, hardcore and, and he was just difficult to live with. He loved me. So everybody would say, oh, you're his golden boy. And I thought, oh, just how, you know how it can be. Sometimes it all goes bad. Like I say, you pull up and you've got a fire that you think, oh, we'll get in there real quickly. Maybe even lay a booster on it and then it gets away from you. Oh. Well, this, these were both the exact opposite. And both, there was only two fires I ever made where he was on the scene. So uh, <laughs> good stuff. But it's interesting because those lucky ones, you can be the hero and those ones where it's the other side of the spectrum, you can be the zero. And oddly enough, they forget about the two hero fires. They <laughs> tend to remember the zero fires pretty quick. So you better believe it. And yeah. I, like I say, it was pure luck. It had nothing to do with us or our skill or anything. It was just pure luck. And it was one of, like I say, I know you've seen them. They're blowing out the window, but it's not deep seated and it's not that difficult to get out, yeah. you know, not in the attic and all that. So. Looks impressive from the outside, but once you get in, it's go. Oh, this isn't too bad. Knock it yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, there's probably two more hours worth of stuff we could talk about. You know, we've been at it about an hour. Uh, maybe one day we'll get back together again and talk about your time at NFPA and the the work you did with the Metro Chiefs and uh, CTIF and the folks overseas and uh, all of that. But you went on after your fire chief's career to to a pretty long career in, at NFPA as well. So. Uh, we could probably get into those. I, you know, one of the people I want to talk to you about, and it's probably going to be a longer conversation, is one of my predecessors is Olin Green, right, uh, who right. passed away just a, a month or two ago. Uh, and I met him for a hot second before COVID, and I, I didn't realize the the his breadth and depth of the fire service that he was involved in uh, as well. So, you know, unfortunately, I can't talk to him, but I know you were pretty close with him, and maybe you, we can share some stories about Olin and some of the other folks that are out there one day. Absolutely happy to. And I will say this about Olin. He was a man among men, I can tell you that. He he was he and I were dear friends. We went on vacation together every year. We ski. We're good ski buddies. We do two or three skiing trips out to Utah uh, each year. And uh, I, I, I tell you, I have nothing but total admiration for Olin. He was, uh, I believe, the first person to be a state fire marshal in two states, in Florida and Oregon. He was, I know he was the first state fire marshal to become the U.S. fire administrator. Uh, but he was, a, he was literally a legend. I mean, Olin was, uh, there'll never be another one. And I'll tell you what the good one thing about Olin, you never wonder what was on Olin's mind, ever. <laughs> you knew what was on his mind. <laughs> and uh, we had some, we had some, 
oh, we had some good times. I mean, and he would, he was just a, like I say, he was just a man among men. He really was. He was a fabulous athlete. He took a five iron in a golf tournament and won the, one club, a five iron and won the tournament and told him he was going to do it. <laughs> Very- he was a phenomenal athlete. Very tin cup esque, like uh, like they did in the movie, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean he was just a, like I say, Robbie, a, not, not only an amazing fire person uh, with his experience and background. He started in the Miami Fire Department and then went to be state fire marshal in Florida, but uh, just uh, his antics. And I'll tell you one quick story to end this on. We were in, and I've got a feeling you've heard this before, maybe, but it's many, many things he did that shocked me. But this one was one that really <laughs> left me flabbergasted. We were at the Southeastern Fire Chiefs Conference in Mobile, Alabama. He and I were both covering it, and we were both, of course, at NFPA at the time. And uh, we walked into a Starbucks, and there were a bunch of college kids. Like it was near, it must have been near a college uh, or some kind of business school or something. But there were a bunch of, you know, when I say kids, like 18, 19 years old, college level kids uh, working on their computers and all. And we're up there ordering. And there was a guy sitting there, a kid with a, I say a kid, like say he's probably, I think he was 19. In fact, I know he was because that's part of the story. But he had a hair like a parrot. He had a, a, a cut uh, mohawk. A mo- mohawk and it was multicolors. It had lots of different colors. In it. And this guy, you could tell he was there with two, two girls about his age, college girls, and he thought he was a big man on campus. You could just tell it. I mean, he was had that air about him, you know, that cockiness and all. And now Olin doesn't say a word to me. We're turning around, getting ready to walk out of the place. And there was, oh, maybe f- 15 people sitting in the place in a very loud voice. He looks at this guy and says, oh, my God. He said, how old are you? Now, everybody in the place stops and they're kind of looking at Olin. And I'm thinking, and I knew Olin had uh, some sons I had never met. And the, and the kid said, what do, you, what, what do you mean, how old am I? He said, how old are you? I need to know how old you are. So now, man, everybody, you can hear a pin drop in here now. He said, I'm 19. Olin said, I was afraid of that. He said, I think you're my son. I'm even thinking this is legit. I'm thinking, oh my God, does he recognize him? And he hadn't seen him for a while or what? And the guy says, what? What do you mean I'm your son? And Olin looks right at him and the whole place, here. they said, it was just about 19 years ago that I had sex with a peacock. And he said, <laughs> it was so funny. The place, the guy wanted to go redneck on him. You know, you could tell it. Uh, but everybody was just laughing and he didn't. And so he just kind of had to kind of slide down the seat. But I thought that is typical Olin. I mean, uh, he was, he was hilarious. He was witty. He was funny. I mean, the guy, and you never knew what was coming next, but you, I could guarantee you one thing, like I say, and, and many other colleagues at NFPA, Bob Duvall is one that knows a lot about Olin had some experiences with him as well. You never ever wonder what was on his mind because he's going to tell you whether you like <laughs> <Yeah>. it or not. <laughs> but he's a great guy. Great oh, guy. Wow. Well, I'm sure there's a bunch more stories out there too. But uh, uh, I want I want to kind of land this and uh, kind of the last question I typically ask uh, the folks that have had a, a fire service career and particularly somebody with 55 years in it and um, the experiences you've had. Uh, if you get the opportunity tomorrow to share uh, a nugget of wisdom or something that could help a, a recruit firefighter or somebody who's just joining the job today, uh, what piece of advice would you give them? Maybe not to get all the way to 55 years in the job, but what would you? What advice would you give them to make sure that they have a very uh, successful career that they're about to enter into? 
Well, I make it short and sweet. I would tell them you're blessed to be joining the greatest profession on the planet. You will soon become part of an international family. Respect the job. It's serious work for serious people. When you don't do your job at the highest possible level, others are going to suffer. So never contribute to the loss of property and especially lives because you were not prepared. And never forget that and you'll be you'll have a, a wonderful career and it's so rewarding because well, you know, I'm talking to another firefighter right here on the phone. I mean, you you know, you know what it's like. There's nothing, no greater feeling than to walk out and know you did your very best. And, and because of that, the outcome saved a life and saved property. Words, good words of wisdom, Russ. And uh, thank you for that. And yeah, yeah I want to get together again because I, you know, like I said, this is, you've got 55 years. It's awful hard to cover it in, in an hour or so. So uh, I certainly want to get back with you one of these days and, uh, share some more stories. So uh, thanks for being with me. Uh, anything else you want to share? No, I appreciate it, Robbie. It's always good to see you. And I miss all my friends at NFPA. But like I say, six Saturdays and a Sunday, man. Nothing better. <laughs> Enjoy them all. See you, man. Uh, Chief Russ Sanders, thanks a lot. And don't forget, if uh, you've got any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at firehouselogbook at gmail.com. Make sure you follow along on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. And if anybody would like to help support this podcast, check out patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast to help support and uh, get some early releases and some uh, expanded content on that as well. So thanks again to Russ Sanders. Uh, my apologies for some of the audio difficulties we were having, a uh, little technical difficulty getting that set up, but uh, we, got it, we got it covered and we got it done. So uh, we'll see you next time.